Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Justin Palmer Show. Today's guest is a friend of mine, Chris Aiello. I met him originally when he was the CFO of one of our investors in the real estate business that I built and own. Um, Chris is an incredible human being. He has an amazing story about losing absolutely everything in the financial crisis of 2008 and being very young, being an entrepreneur and his comeback from that and how he's used that to design his business that he's in today, which is also a real estate business focused on commercial over residential. Uh, he has incredible insight around the economy and what's happening in the world. And I, re I really value everything that he says. I, I always bounce ideas off him about the economy and about the future of the, the capital markets and things of that nature. So I hope you guys enjoy and check it out. You can check out Chris on Instagram and uh, his and his website. So it's a Justin Palmer show. Here we, here we go. Woo. Okay, man, Chris Ayala, I've got the question of the hour for you. How is the real estate industry going to continue to do deals now that strip clubs are closed? <laughs> it's so great. Oh man, I don't know. I, I, how do you, uh, you know, how do you do new business if you can't leave your house and you can't bring anybody to a strip club? What a problem! I yeah, agree. it's pretty bad. I was no, just thinking of a Joe Kosum and all of his, uh, all all of those conversations we've had about, hey, bro, bring me the Lido Club. <laughs> so ridiculous. When's that coming back? Never. <laughs> I, I think I think a lot of a lot of things about past life which isn't that long ago are just gone. Totally. It's sad. Yeah. Well, what, what are you, um, what have you been up to in terms of, uh, on the, on the business front? Like what you, you were in uh, something that I think is extremely interesting in the co-living space. I think, I think it's probably helpful to try to quickly explain what that is for anybody who doesn't know what it is. And then also just talk about how how things are going in your portfolio because you built up a pretty massive portfolio of construction i'd be curious to hear what's going on yeah no it makes sense I and mean, i we got into co-living you know four years ago because it just kind of made sense in the market that we were we were looking at right and construction costs rents have gone, gone up through the roof right and so it made sense to invest in something that was quote-unquote affordable without any public subsidies right and so that was the, the general thesis and I think, you know, it took a while to figure out where that made sense. We started in New York, um, quickly realized that that was not working uh, for, for a number of reasons. Um, and then really kind of pivoted to other markets, you know, looking at LA is like kind of the one that made the most sense. Um, and ultimately, um, you know, what I realized about LA is that the underlying kind of zoning that has been put in place in that, you know, in Los Angeles, was really built for a suburban lifestyle, right? You know, if you think about LA as a market going back a hundred years, it was just a bunch, it was a desert, right? That just got settled as like suburban housing. Um, and it became a metropolis, you know, over the last, you know, 50 years, um, you know, and so, you know, as, as new construction kind of built up over the last, you know, 15, 20 years, really just kind of shifted to all luxury housing. Um, and so there's massive missing middle, uh, way worse than what you see in New York. Um, New York actually has a lot of you know, good organic housing stock in the boroughs that you can, you know, are relatively affordable compared to the rest of the world. LA just doesn't have that at all. 
and there's no really way to produce it, right? And so, um, you know, so looking at co-living as an asset class, obviously it's, it's a shared housing model. So you live with roommates, you know, uh, which is something that's been going on for forever, right? People have lived with roommates since, since the existence of housing. Um, and so, you know, the, the transition into making that into a legitimate asset class is really technology, right? You know, how do you lease and manage that space in a way that's effective, right? And, you know, like whatever, 15 years ago, when people would, you know, get out of college, they'd move to a city, they'd find three or four roommates, they'd grab an apartment together, they'd figure it out, right? And I think slowly that's evolved into this, you know, more, you know, Craigslist mentality of, hey, I just need roommates because I need to afford to live here and it can be anyone who's random, right? And so now I think there's more randoms living together than friends in reality. And then, you know, so as we were looking at the space, you know, the operators that were coming online had all kind of said, all right, I can, I can build technology to basically roommate match and essentially lease these things essentially per bed, right? And to create the maximum amount of affordability. Um, and so, you know, intertwining all that, looking at LA, uh, there's this arbitrage in the zoning, uh, which basically says that all of my impact costs, all of my parking requirements, all of my unit requirements are all based on, you know, this low density environment. Um, and everyone's just been building studios ones and twos for forever. Um, and so if you then build a five or a six bedroom apartment, you get the same benefits. I only have to park two spots for a five bedroom apartment versus a two bedroom apartment. You know, it's the same cost of, you know, fees, et cetera, right? So you, you add all those things together and there's this, you know, land arbitrage on top of the fact that developers are valuing land based on the fact that they can only build studios once and twos, right? We're valuing land based on, we can build way more density this way. So it just gave us a huge advantage um, looking at the market um, as a newcomer to LA. So we were able to acquire a bunch of stuff, right? And, um, you know, we have probably about 1,500-ish beds in some level of construction um, or pre-development out there. Um, and, you know, really just kind of plugged away over the last two years. I mean, I think um, what's interesting about, you know, where this goes kind of post-pandemic is um, early on, we actually identified the reality of, uh, of like the demand for co-living, which was, at the end of the day, people are looking for private space. They're not looking for shared space only. They want they want to have some level of privacy, and the easiest way to do that is a studio, right? You know, in, in any market, except that you know it's just unattainable for most people. Um, and so we started building, uh, you know, essentially a private bedroom, private bathroom, and then you share the kitchen and living room. You know, like so we we emphasize kind of no sharing of bathrooms immediately. Um, now we have some of those situations, but now like kind of post COVID, it's really kind of proven out to me to be substantially like, you know, important to, you know, have private space, um, even in a roommate situation. And I think, you know, temporarily, you know, the demand for housing is, is low in cities just because people got the hell out of there. Mm -hmm. Um, but long-term, like it's just not realistic to think that people aren't going to move to a place like Los Angeles post COVID. Right. Yeah, I was, I, I'm wondering if there's going to be a hesitancy to lease those spaces because of the shared kitchen component, or is that just sort of a non-factor? Well, so what's interesting is that we clean it once a week, right? And so the, our operator, you know, goes in, cleans, right? And so 
that's a value proposition to, you know, to pitching your, your prospective tenant, right? In, in a normal roommate situation or any other situation, you're cleaning it yourself, right? So now at least you have a third party that comes in, cleans the entire thing once a week, you're guaranteed to have a clean space, right? And so yeah, now, I mean, I feel like that is like a huge amenity, right? For someone to say, all right, I'm going to make a concession about sharing a few things, but I need it because... I can't afford another $600 a month to live in my studio. And for that, I'm going to get some benefit out of it. We're going to at least clean it once a week. You know, all my furniture's included. All my utilities are included. I'm just saving money. And it's, and I have like a clean, nice place to live versus the alternative, which is a random roommate situation in a subpar building or just generally commuting and living in the suburbs, which I just don't think is a solution for pretty much anyone who is under the age of 35 and doesn't have kids. Right. Yeah. It, and for anybody who doesn't know what co-living is, it's, it, it's basically an apartment building of these units that Chris is describing, which is, is shared, shared units, basically. And you have some amenities like a bathroom and a bedroom that are yours, and then you share a living room and kitchen, which is, that, that is highly innovative in the, the commercial real estate space. It's, I, I'm, I'm wondering you guys ramped up pretty quickly. How was financing the first few projects? Oh my God, it's hard. Um, you know, the banks, they don't understand, right? You, you, you look at a, um, you know, you talk to a banker, right? You know, someone who's probably in their mid forties to early fifties, they've been at the bank 20 years. They underwrite a million deals. They're expecting a certain like layout, a certain price, you know, per foot, you know, all the like check the box items. And this doesn't fit inside any of them, right? And so, you know, the first question is always, why would anyone want to live like this, right? And, you know, it always comes back to the same issue, which is, listen, people aren't organically choosing to share apartments, like, because they, they, they absolutely want to. Now, of course, there's some people that are like that. But for the most part, people are just like, hey, I literally make $60,000 a year. I'm 27 years old. I can't afford a 24-hour studio. Just the math just doesn't work. Right. And so if you look the last, you know, 30 years in this country or so, you know, rent has gone up way more than wages, right? In pretty much every MSA in the United States. Um, and pretty much every suburb too, right? And so it's just not, it's just not trailing. The wealth gap continues to get worse. Um, and so, you know, co-living obviously, you know, provides that. And so convincing these lenders, um, you know, to, to essentially loan like a normal real estate deal, you know, it's just, it's just, you know, pulling teeth. And it still is today. I mean, I think we've, we've had a lot of success and now, um, now actually have a track record to kind of point back to. I'm like, hey, we finished the building release. You know, this is what it looks like. Size is good. You know, and other lenders that have actually made loans now are peers to the other groups. And they're like, okay, if that group is lending, then I feel comfortable. Um, so I think it's just one of those things where over time, like it's just going to continue to improve. Yeah. And in terms of um, what you're seeing in in the marketplace, you you guys have been pretty successful at leasing up all the buildings, like filling up the buildings that you've built thus far. Yeah, I mean the demand has been great. I mean, and our operator has, um, you know, our common is our main operator. We also work with Ali. Um, both of them have opened numerous buildings across many different markets, and so this has already been proven. Um, you know, at a small scale, but the demand has been. Right. Um, I think common today is getting somewhere between 20 and 30,000 sort of 
indications of interest on their website per mm. month. Wow. Um, and they've only opened about 2,500 beds in the United States. And so I, you know, the demand is just way more than the supply. Now, not everybody that you know is interested is, is at the same price point. If you, if you look at co-living and roommate living as an asset class, like, it's not just kind of what we're doing. It's also going all the way down to like pods, right? People are living in bunk beds in the middle of, you know, these cities, right? You know, I think in San Francisco at the peak of things, like people were renting pods for like 1200 a month because uh, they're literally so unaffordable. Um, and so, you know, if you look at just kind of that landscape, um, you know, and obviously our own portfolio, I mean, it's just like unlimited demand at a certain price point. So we're just constantly looking for ways to, you know, um, just create optimization, you know, in the design, you know, the, basically the minimum size bedroom that people, people enjoy the minimum size bathroom, you know, how much, how much kitchen space does everybody need on a per person basis for this to work? And then obviously backing into development costs, where does that kind of leave us? Um, and so, so far we've been able to, to achieve and, and, uh, you know, underwrite to essentially a significant premium in yield over a traditional multifamily. So the evidence is there, it just needs to be done at scale. And so we're, you know, we're almost there, we're in the process. And you guys, I, I recall uh, toward the end of last year, you guys launched a big capital raise. Have you put the brakes on that because of the pandemic or have you continued to do that and sized it down? What What's the strategy update going forward? Great question. Um, you know, so we went out to the market really September, October last year. Um, you know, as you know, fundraising, it just takes a long time, right? It's a lot of conversations, a ton of meetings on planes, back and forth. Um, we took all the way that through into 2020, uh, right around like February 1st, we actually had three kind of offers for equity from three very large institutions. You know them all by name. We ended up signing a term sheet with one of them um, on March 18th, which ended up being uh, pretty awful timing. We actually had uh, the following week, we had um, you know a plane trip to LA scheduled with uh, members of their investment committee to come out tour the properties, you know, do the, the whole dog and pony show before kind of going to committee on, on the strategy. Um, ultimately, you know, a week later, basically the world shut. Um, and so it put that whole kind of process on hold. Um, we've, we've stayed in touch with all those groups over the last six months, giving them all the updates we can. But, you know, as we all know, when it comes to fundraising, right, you know, investors need a floor to work off of, which is okay. This is my, this is what comps are. This is where what construction costs are. This is where cap rates are, all these floors, right? And then you basically say, all right, if I'm going to make a bet on something, these are the, these are the variables, right? And so. We, we had done a really good job kind of getting those variables down to three or four items, right? Um, and now in a post-COVID world, those variables are probably 20 or 30. Um, and so getting through an investment committee process is virtually impossible. Um, and so we, we really kind of had to pivot our entire thinking around that. And so we, we just started looking at different kind of financing options. We actually just got a term sheet today um, and it, on a different structure, which is really like a ground lease and a leasehold financing structure, which I'm sure you're very familiar with. Um, uh, that's, you know, a product that's kind of been delivered in the market the last three or four years. Um, and they're starting to figure out how to price it properly so that it makes sense for the developer. Um, and, you know, it's something that we're looking at because, you know, frankly, it's, it's really the best option right now. I think 
you know, all of the institutions are, they're, they're really interested in what's going to happen here and how COVID plays out because if it, if it plays out the way we think it's going to, and it shows that it's strong, they're all going to join, right? Because it's really just another, it's another segment of multi um, in their mind with a better youth, right? So they'll all jump back in, um, but it could be a long time before that happens. I mean, it might be another year, you know, we just don't know. I think there needs to be time for data to, to prove itself, um, you know, and until there's really kind of a, a normalcy that's put back in place and we can, you know, ascertain where the bottom is dropped out on rents, you know, across the board, multi-end right? They're all going to go down. Right? This is what happens. Um, until there's a bottom there, like we're not going to know, you know, how they feel about investing, unfortunately. Sure. And what it, it's fascinating to me because um, I'm watching you, I, we've gotten to know each other pretty well over the last almost decade. And it, you're, you're talking through this totally unknown scenario with so much confidence. And I think it, it's important for people to understand this isn't your first business adventure. Right. right? And uh, where, what, what was your first venture in business and what year was it? Give, give a little background yeah. on, on your history. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I started my first real estate business in 2004. Uh, I was 22 years old. Um, I just graduated from college. I was working for my dad, um, doing something that had nothing to do with real estate. Um, and I had virtually no real estate experience outside of a, um, a house that uh, buddies and I purchased down in Orlando, Florida, uh, back in 2002, uh, which we successfully bought um, in pre-construction, closed, and then kind of leased out to um you know, families that were traveling to Disney World. And so we got the, like the first real like kind of taste of what, what a rental property would be. Um, and then subsequently flipped that about 15 months later for a pretty decent profit um, heading into like, you know, my senior year of college, right? So basically I raised all my beer money for the year. Um, and so that was my like foray into real estate. I, you know, kind of loved it, right? Because it was fantastic. And if you look back at the time frame, like we had a big run up in this country from in housing from 2001, to 2007. So just like a product of timing. Of course, you know, when you're 22 or 20, you don't really, you don't really know that, right? And so basically right after college said, you know, I'm not going to go be a CPA like my accounting degree tells me to do. I'm going to be an entrepreneur. Um, and I'd always been an entrepreneur since I was, you know, probably 13, 14 with all kinds of different stuff, which we could get into it. So it was always fun. Um, but, uh, you know, basically teamed up with a buddy of mine uh, we, we said real estate makes sense. We can do fix and flips like everybody else can, you know, let's, let's spend some time figuring out where to do it. Um, we had access to a little bit of capital through some family, you know, friends and family. Um, and we, we kind of settled on Charlotte, North Carolina as a market, uh, for a number of different reasons, really the main ones being one, it was affordable. We could actually buy deals that were like sub under K. So we could kind of jump into the market with not a lot of money. Uh, and then two, really, you know, all the population growth that's been going on in Charlotte and like, you know, just the Sunbelt states in general over the last, you know, 20 years, you know, we've just felt that was going to continue, right? At the time, uh, Wells Fargo, which well, was Wachovia at the time, uh, was, was actually headquartered in Charlotte. Um, and so was Bank of America. And so there was a ton of just influx of population, you know, good jobs, good finance jobs coming to the city. And so it just made sense to, to basically invest in that MSA. Um, you know, not really knowing anything about real estate, it was kind of like, you know, just kind of made it up, uh, essentially. 
pitched it to a couple of groups. We went down there, um, started talking to a local partner because uh, we needed some local expertise, somebody on the ground that could at least help with, you know, you know, figuring it out, right? And so I uh, got in touch with a group um, that was doing kind of fix and flips, you know, the last like, three years prior to that, was looking for some new equity sources, and really kind of just put together a JV, which is something that, you know, um, I've now done a, a bunch of different times in my career at this point. Um, and, you know, started out really good. I mean, 2005 was interesting. 2006 was interesting. Made a bunch of money, did a bunch of good deals. The market was hot. Um, what we didn't realize was that all of our buyers from all these properties were all basically getting subprime loans. Um, and so, you know, selling, buying a property for 70 grand, putting in, you know, 10, 15,000 of short-term, you know, um, repairs, you know, painting, you know, making it look pretty and then flipping it, you know, for 110, 120K uh, was really simple. I mean, because basically the buyers were, we had a list. I mean, I remember talking to brokers and, and they'd be like, hey, I have a buyer list of 20 people. As soon as you're ready, like we, we can close, right? And they would, you know, they would basically line these people up. They'd buy the property. We'd close, they'd get 100% financing, right? And so, you know, obviously, you know, it looked like the gravy train was never going to end, um, but it, it certainly did really quick. Um, and I think by, we knew as early as 2007, like March of 07, which was like way before Lehman even went under, mm-hmm. um, we knew that the spigot stopped, right? And so like, I remember having like four or five closings set up for like a one, you know, one week. And we're all with one broker who had a bunch of these buyers um, and one lender. Um, and I remember uh, him calling me the, the day before the closing, like, uh, you're not gonna believe this, all the lenders basically pulled their commitments. And so all the people aren't, you know, can't close. I'm like, okay, we'll get a new lender. Right? And he's like, well, I've been trying. And so like within within a matter of like 30 days, like every, the music basically stopped, right? And so it was just literally musical chairs, like, you know, what happened? And so nine months after that, the housing market in Charlotte and pretty much everywhere else um, went down about 75%. I mean, so houses that we were selling for 120,000 were basically, you know, we had an investor that would be willing to give us, you know, 30 grand for it, you know, to close in two two days, right? Like, so there was literally not one owner user buyer that existed in the market for, I don't know, maybe three years after that. Um, and so it was just a, it was a really interesting learning experience. And, you know, luckily, uh, luckily I really didn't get hurt that much. I mean, I, um, you know, I went through some struggles and, you know, had a, had a couple of loans that went bad, um, had some investors that I, I wanted to pay back cause they were personal friends, did all that. Um, but yeah, it was honestly, it was the, it was a Harvard education in real estate, right. You know, learning the hard way. Um, but it was good because it, you know, it set me up for a lot of different success later, right? And how we, and especially, you know, in the current business that I'm running, you know, set it up in a way that um, I think we've avoided a lot of that in what amounted to a really absurd kind of downturn here. Um, you know, we've, we didn't overlever anything. We've been, you know, we've been really conservative in how we think about investing in real estate. And so I think it's gonna ultimately keep us above water, um, even though right now it's, it's tough. Right. That, I mean, your story is incredible. And I think it's, it's hard for people to comprehend what it was like. You you hear all these stories in the media about 
what it was like from the other side, right? What it was like for in the in the banking and the capital markets industry, which like it I don't know that people can relate to that. You were on the ground making investments at the house by house level. And right. that it's just a completely different view of the universe than what's been provided by most mainstream media because they focus on what's big. And so I think it's incredible that you navigated your way through that scenario. I mean, did you have properties that you had to give back to the bank? Yep. Yep. We gave back. Um, well, it's kind of funny that you say that because we tried to give them back, but most of the lenders went out of business, um, which was a really interesting kind of situation. I remember having uh, a couple of deals where I actually found a short sale model, right? And so like they would you'd go through a normal short sale process where you basically say to the bank, hey, the loan's 75,000 bucks, the house is worth 40, but reality, uh, the guys will pay 30, you know, but you need to accept less, you'll get a check for 30, you know, we can close whenever, right? And I remember the banks being so inundated and they had so many defaults that they literally didn't have enough people to feel those requests. It was just a black hole of insanity. And then ultimately a lot of the lenders went under, um, you know, and then the loans were sold a million times. I mean, what was kind of interesting on, and we did, we did deals with, you know, where I got financing or my partner got financing and then, or we, we did all cash for the investors, just depended on the deal. Um, and so I, some of those projects that we ended up kind of defaulting on, we had, we had tried to give the keys back to the lender. Um, and really they actually were just like kind of lost in the shuffle. Like, the lender actually never foreclosed. They went under, they, they went out of business. The loan got sold so many times. I don't even know what happened. Like we literally just walked away because it was, it was like never ending problem. Right. And, and to, what's funny is that it, it never came back. I mean, if you go back to the same areas that we were buying in, the houses are still selling for less than hundred K literally never returned. Um, that's how damaged it was. Um, and so, you know, we, we just kind of, we just kind of walked on some of the stuff. It was, uh, it was really, really crazy. Um, and, you know, I, there were so many groups that we knew that got absolutely crushed way worse. I mean, like it could have been so much worse. Let's just put it that way. I mean, I, I had met, we had met this group that had, they had gotten into the multifamily too. They'd done a bunch of different things. I, I we, we met a, a group that they lost like 30,000 units in, in that debacle. Wow. Um, yeah, of just, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in the portfolio that they just couldn't recover it from. I mean, you know, even in the multifamily space during that time, uh, in those areas, like, you know, class C multifamily, the recession was so bad that, you know, people that had properties that were 96% occupied with 94% people paying to, you know, basically 40% vacancy, you know, 30% collections, you know, to the point where it just, there's no, there's no chance you can service your debt. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, listen, it was, I think it's a lot worse than people even realize. Um, and, uh, you know, the lenders were, were certainly, you know, predatory. Lending. Uh, it was happening all over the place. These people were not qualified to buy homes. Um, and it's sad because they were just being taken advantage of. So I, so many people got hurt in that situation. It was awful. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, I feel that, um, the band-aid that was put on that by the U.S. government in the solution. I, I, I don't disagree that it stabilized the economy and it's easy to criticize something when you don't have the full picture. However, 
I don't think our, the U S economy ever really dealt with the repercussions and the restructurings that were required in our no. system from 2008 to 2007, eight and nine. And I think that's part of what I'm, I'm worried that's going to resurface now with this pandemic. And that's, it seems like some of the social stuff that's coming out is, uh, it's just pent up from this inequality that was built up, um, from that experience. Yeah, no, I, I agree completely. I mean, I think, you know, to, to kind of look at what happened kind of post that, right. We had this huge kind of run up of asset values again, rents went up a ton, you know, the stock market went up a ton, you know, and interest rates really kind of stayed low for a long time and they really couldn't raise them. Um, and so they tried in 2018 and it really, the market reacted so poorly to it. And so then they had to blow them again. Right. And then now, you know, COVID hit, right. And they, they lowered them to zero. I, I'm not sure if they'll ever raise them again. Right. And so that's, you know, printing the money, interest rates being zero, like you add all those things up together, at some point, like we're all going to have to pay the piper, right? It's not a free rock, you know, it's a massive asset bubble that's really kind of been going on for 30 years um, and has been fueled the last 10. Um, and, you know, it doesn't seem like there's any end in sight. I just don't, I don't know how it can be fixed. Um, it's a major problem. Yeah, it, this seems like the problem that's facing our generation and and the generations that are coming before us is dealing with how we're dealing with money supply, dealing with the debt of the US government, and then dealing with how to take care of people that haven't been that maybe don't have the opportunities or haven't been taken care of by society in general. It's like, a, this is a this is a huge problem. Yeah, no, it's, um, it's all intertwined, which is sad. I do think you know, just looking at LA as a market now, I've spent so much time in the last couple of years, you know, it's truly a market of haves and have nots, right? I mean, which is just, it's so sad. I mean, you can, you, know, you drive by to go get, you know, a $6 cup of coffee and there's, you know, four homeless people inside. Like, I mean, like, how is that okay? Like, well, how did we get here, right? I mean, I just feel like that, there's just no way that a healthy environment can ever like continue right with that happening it's just it's human suffering um you know and it's i don't know if it's anyone's individual fault right you know and I, you can't you can't argue for you know in a capitalistic society for people to not you know take risks and invest in businesses and you know develop real estate and try to and try to get better for their family like you can't argue that that's a bad thing but there's got to be some like happy medium in there where people can you know can live, right? A living wage, if you will, that allows them to not be homeless or, or even just be able to like have an opportunity to get ahead. I just think it's so hard right now. Um, you know, and I, you look at kind of college, right? You know, not to kind of go really deep on stuff, but I, I feel like college is, is a scam, you know, in a sense, right? It's been, you know, the, the cost of college has been overridden by, it's up, you know, seven, 800%, you know, from when our parents kind of went to college. And, you know, it just doesn't pay. It doesn't pay to go $200,000 in debt to get a $75,000 a year job. Like, it just, it just doesn't, right? And so there's no guarantee by, you know, spending 200K of debt to go is going to get you to making 250. Like, it's just to pay. It's just not, there's just no guarantee. And so, like, there's just a bunch of cultural issues, too, that I think are just fueling it. Um, you know, we'll see. I mean, maybe, maybe COVID will change that. Um, on some of those things that, that do need to be fixed. Um, and 
you know, are clear bubbles, right? Like that's a clear bubble. Like, you know, there's no reason for a college that like literally 30 years ago, you could go for, you know, 2000 bucks to get a degree per year. That's now 48,000 a year. Like this just, just doesn't make sense. Totally. Why? It, I look at it the same way I look at bottled water. Which is, it, I had this realization, at, I don't know how long, a year or two ago, a couple of years ago when I was walking around Manhattan. And I'm like, why is it fucking $4 for a bottle of water just because this deli's on the corner of like 38th and 9th and no man's land? I can get it for free coming out of the faucet. And I think that translates to education, which I've been, I've been having this conversation with you know, my wife and my family. And I don't know that my kids are, need to go to college. I don't, I don't know that they're going to need to. I don't know that the next generation is going, is going to need to do that, especially when you can come out, get life experience, go find your niche, whether it's entrepreneurial or being a part of a company that is, is doing something important and avoid all that debt load. I mean, that, I, it took me almost 10 years to pay off my student loans and they weren't anywhere near $200,000, right. anywhere near. They were a fraction of that. And it, cause I went to a really cheap school and I went to college because I dropped out of high school. And so I needed to reset the bar so that people would look at me as like someone who could finish something. Yeah. And so no, I, I, I wanted to go back to something that you said that I think is interesting, which is how did you know when to let go of the bad investments? So like you said, you, some of them you just walked away from. And I think that's an important thing for people to understand because there's times when you just need to move on from something. It doesn't mean that you're giving up on who you are, what you stand for, or what you're doing. But this is the same way that the most sophisticated investors in the world look at their investments. It's, and it's a process called don't put good money after bad. And I think that's, that's an important lesson to learn. I'm, I want to know how you got to that place. Because you were young when all the shit was hitting the fan in the financial crisis. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it started out as a math problem, right? You know, which was, okay, great. You know, uh, if I own this property and it's worth X and my loan is Y, uh, how much longer do I have to wait for it to ever be worth that again? Right. And what can I rent it for? You, you know, just literally running math, right. And math just never works. Right. Uh, so we actually had, it's funny that you said that because we, we had gotten some advice from, you know, a mentor, if you will, about, well, what should we do? You know, and his advice was borrow the money and get out of debt, save your credit, and don't go bankrupt and all that stuff. Um, and I remember doing the math on that and being like, okay, great. Like I'm gonna borrow, you know, three hundred thousand dollars from who, you know, somebody, uh, at what rate, you know, to basically save my credit. You know, that doesn't make sense, you know, especially when you do all the, the diligence on what happens when you just wait, right? My credit score today is like 830. Right. All I had to do was basically just become a good citizen and pay my bills, all the other bills, basically. Right. And so, you know, I just, we just waited. I mean, uh, you know, even being young, just trying to look at it and saying, like, you know, it's not the end of the world. I mean, look, you know, it wasn't that simple. Right. I mean, I had a lot of, a lot of dark days. And, you know, ask my wife, ask my parents. It was tough. Right. And I lost some of my parents, you know, in that, in that whole situation. And so, you know, it was very, very difficult. But ultimately, you know, I think it's almost easier when it's so bad because that's what the financial crisis in 07, 08 and 09 was. Um, it was really bad. 
right? And so it was easy to, to not put good money after that because it wasn't like it was close, right? In other recessions or other, you know, situations where you have it here as an investor where, you know, it's close where you're like, all right, hey, well, if I, you know, reposition this or whatever, you know, you might be able to survive. Sometimes in those cases, it was still way better to walk away. Um, but you get kind of confused or, you know, essentially you're, you're biased, right, to the deal, right? Because you're you're so into it, right? And you've, you've put all of your, your hard work into it, right? And so, um, you know, identifying that is definitely a, a critical, you know, kind of part of being an investor. Um, you know, fortunately for me and at the time, it, it just made sense. And, and, you know, I saw it that way. Was there any, like, was there any, specific moment or series of moments that you recall that kind of led to that realization it, or was it was literally just putting things on paper doing the math and figuring out okay um this this hole is a lot bigger than i thought it was well i mean it was that right? that was the first thing we kind of did right and then i think you know the the demoralization around trying to kind of be a good borrower right on defaulted loans um, and trying, like basically trying to find a, a short sale buyer, trying to work with the bank on, you know, something, right. And, and then essentially just not being receptive at all, like being lost in this black hole of like, you know, being on hold for 45 minutes to get another person that you have to explain for an entire hour what happened to get them back up to speed with the guy that you're on the phone with yesterday. Right. After doing that for weeks and weeks and months and months, like trying to like kind of do what I could and getting absolutely nowhere. I mean, I think that was probably the biggest realization. I remember, you know, I just remember being like, this is insane. Like, you, like, like this, this the world is not set up for this. Like, they're, they're only set up for good times. Um, I mean, even, even the big lovers, like we had some, some with JP Morgan, like, I couldn't even get anybody on the phone, right? They were literally a mess. I mean, and so it was just, I think at that, at that point was when, I remember sitting in a room with my partner and just being like, there's just literally nothing we can do. Like it is what it is. Um, yeah. And I was, I think that was, you know, I remember sitting in, in his living room, his parents' house being like, we're just going to stop paying. Like we can't, there's, just, there's nothing to do. It is what it is. And just moving on mentally. It was tough though. Yeah. That's, I mean, I can only imagine. And I, it, the part of the reason why I'm asking is because I think it's, I mean, this is something I've dealt with on investments, in relationships, in life, in change that, that is a part of life. You know, you have to, the key to continuing your life is just moving forward, right? Yeah. Even, even when it fucking sucks, even when it seems like there's no way out, even when there, you know, the world, the cards seem stacked against you. And I can only imagine, especially that, I mean, I didn't have that type of responsibility when I was that young and going through that, especially with, you know, with friends, family, money, that's a fucking hard thing to deal with. That's, that's a really challenging psychological predicament that people find themselves in. And I don't find that a lot of people talk about it. No, it took me years to recover from it. I mean, I, even all the way up to 2014, 2015, I was questioning, you know, the the concept of, you know, being an entrepreneur again, right? Because of that. Uh, I think the biggest thing that I learned from it, um, taking into this, the discussion around making investments was really don't make an investment unless you 
unless there's a way that you can walk away, right, in a thoughtful manner, right? That 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 could mean that you lose money, but there's got to be an out, which is like I like okay, if things become a problem, I can cut it off here, and things that are truly important, like my family or whatever, you know, are not affected, or they're they're affected in a way that we're going to survive no problem, right? I mean, you know. That was like a major kind of learning, right? You know, and because I could have could have been way worse, right? And like, you know, so as I as I designed how I got back into being an entrepreneur and developer in real estate, everything that I've structured to date in my business has basically allowed me to isolate that and say, like, at any moment, right? And you know, I remember in the middle of April being like being in a place like Hey, if this if this really goes down, you know, down down the tubes, where you know, and, and and what that could have been is okay, maybe COVID is way worse than it ended up being, and we, five million people die. Right? You want to talk about a recession? Forget that. Like, I mean, we're talking about cataclysmic debacle, right? Yeah. Everything's screwed for decades, right? You know, on something like that. And thankfully, that that didn't happen, right? You know, and it isn't happening. It doesn't look like it's going to, but you know, like just trying to like, where could I cut it? Right. Where could I cut, cut the business or cut the investment or cut something that I basically still likes. Right. I think that is, that is so critical. Um, and it's easy in an up market or, you know, everyone's a genius in a bull market, right. It's easy to completely go over your skis um, when things are, you know, seem easy and they're fun and, Oh yeah, let me just lever it again. Right. Got to be really careful. Um, especially in real estate, because it's so capital intensive that you just can't survive when things go wrong if you if you set it up like you know wrong essentially. I mean, and that's that only comes through experience, though. Unfortunately, it's not something yeah. you can learn in college. It just doesn't work. You can only you can only be in the real estate field to figure out how to get out. Yeah, it it's funny as you're talking about this, I'm seeing a lot of parallels to what's happening right now where, but I just don't know if people are going to come back to cities, right? Obviously it's in it. There's a lot of investment behind city. There's been so much capital investment in cities over the last 10 years. Like I I have no idea what the number is just flying around city to city. As we were looking at deals, we were building stuff. We were looking at markets to expand to there has been, Billions upon billions upon billions of dollars put into towers in cities. And now they're just shut off. They're shut down. And I'm curious to see what's going to happen because I think there may, there is a probability of a scenario out there where people don't really return in the same way. It doesn't mean that people aren't going to live in cities, but if you don't have to, you're not going to pay that rent for, and it's not really your product that's at as much risk as it is like the hotels, the offices, the super expensive apartment buildings that are fully amenitized and you're paying $4,000 a month for a studio. No, I know it's certainly a risk and it's certainly on everyone's mind, which is what is, you know, obviously causing a lot of pain and suffering on the fundraising side, right? Because everyone's asking that question. If you've been in real estate for more than 20 minutes, you ask that question. Um, And so I I think that the issue though, Forget real estate for a second. Just if you think about the dynamic around how business happens, um, it, so every everybody, no matter what business they're in, doesn't matter what it is. Literally any product, anything that you're, you're involved in, there is a sales pitch, right? 
there's sales have to be made, whether you're being sold or, or you're selling something, right? And it's very, very hard to build new relationships and to create new business on Zoom. It's just, it's extremely difficult, right? And so if you think about that dynamic, right, which is, all right, I need to, I need to create, I need to pitch new clients, I need to pitch new investors, I need to, I need to do things, right, that require me to be outside of my home office or just being a, a digital nomad. Um, it, when you think about how business gets done, ultimately, like that's still going to have to return, right? I, you know, I've, I've been asking a lot of different people in a lot of different industries, mainly around one comment, which was, how are you guys doing your business development? today, right? And I keep hearing, we're not, we're only focusing on our existing clients, we're only focusing on our existing clients. Okay, eventually, that's not going to work anymore, right? You can't continue to grow your business and be successful with your existing clients, right? You have to grow, right? and everybody is set up for that reality. And so if you think about that, as that eventually starts to put pressure on business, whatever it is, it's going to require more effort, you know, and it's going to require, you know, leaving your house, going to an investor pitch with 14 people, right? Like, I just can't imagine a world that, you know, that where you can be able to successfully sell your product and create new relationships via a computer. And so I think that what will happen is it will never go back to where it exactly was. It will be some delta in the middle of, yeah, I can work from home when I have email days, but when I, when I need to have 16 meetings, I'm going to Manhattan. Right, or I'm going to, to San Francisco or whatever it is, or if I gotta fly to Chicago to meet that client, I'm gonna do it. Like, so I think it got a little bit out of control, right? You know, pre COVID, where, you know, people were, if you're not in the office 80 hours a week, like you're not working, you know, that mentality definitely has to go away a little bit, but that was unhealthy to begin with. So I think getting to a happy medium is actually just gonna be better. And, and I think if you look at how jobs have been created in the last 20 years, not being created in the suburbs. They're just not, and they haven't been. And so if you add those two factors together, even in a in a tech society, you know, if you if you need to do on-the-ground sales, like every business, eventually you're gonna you're gonna gravitate back to the office. And there's no no better place to be in a clustering environment than in a city. So this, I think, is going to be a blip in the radar. It may last five years, right? I mean, it may not be short, but I think ultimately the city aspect of living will con- will will continue on this on a similar path the way it was before. It just may be a little bit different this time in the sense that you know new living situations might might exist, right? You know, a different demographic might exist. You know, maybe people like who were you know holding on in, in like Manhattan, for instance. You know, I have a lot of friends in their late 30s that had kids in the last three or four years that were holding on for one more year in the city, right? COVID pushed all that out, right? But if you're 27 years old and you work at a tech company and like ultimately like your buddy who's been going into the office every day gets promoted and you don't because you've been at home five days a week, like what are you going to do? You're going to go into the office. And so like, I just think that culture will, re- will return, you know, in a post-vaccine where everyone like stops caring world. Which just may take a long time, but I like I just can't imagine how how it goes any other way. And when you look at you know you look at the suburbs, it's not like it's super affordable to live here, and there's nothing right. to do. I mean, I live in the suburbs, right? And it's expensive. I mean, my neighbor's house is for sale for a million bucks. Like, good luck if you make seventy five grand a year. You're not buying, so I don't know what you're doing. Yeah, I 
I go back and forth because I, my tendency is to agree with most of what you just said. There, I've, I just feel that there's the, a newer generation that grew up on their iPhone feels completely different around technology. They feel completely different around using Zoom, using you know any, any sort of technology to connect with people in a, in a social media driven world, which is still totally foreign to me. You know, I, I had, I remember when I got a pager when I was 14 <laughs> yeah. and that was earth shattering that people could page you with a code and then you would pick up the phone and call them back and figure out where you're going to meet. Yeah. You know, and I, I just think today's society, it, I, I'm not sure it's going to come back. I'm, I'm not sure. I, I think this may be a threshold thing. And I, th- I think without a pandemic, the rate of change would be a lot slower. With the pandemic, it, it shut everything off. So now people are going to start designing the way you, you took all your learning lessons and designed how you structure your business going forward. It, it feels to me like there's a high probability that people are going to start designing businesses around the fact that you don't have to be there in person. That does, yep. Some industry like construction for right now, you've got to be on site. Well, what happens when 3D printing is prevalent? So there's like one person, two people on site any given day and a 3D printer is putting up a building. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think like I one, one uh, person that I've listened to over the past couple of years is a guy named Peter Diamandis, who's um, he's the founder of Singularity University and he runs something called XPRIZE. He's a futurist. He's, he's like a Kurzweil. Him and Ray Kurzweil do a bunch of stuff together. And I asked him a question. I was at a conference where he was speaking. I asked him a question about what do you think about the real estate industry and construction? And he was like, it, it's going to completely change because when location becomes irrelevant through technology and not just telecommuting technology, even transportation technology of you know, automated vehicles, autonomous driving, People, location becomes irrelevant. And I kept thinking to myself, okay, if location is irrelevant, how do you value these assets in these cities? And I really, I, I stopped investing because I, I don't have the answer to that question. No, I mean, look, you're not wrong, right? I mean, there's certainly that, that's definitely on the list of outcomes uh, for sure. Um, I think the one, the one thing that I think gives me some comfort you know, in near term kind of investing, right, is the fact that uh, for those things to become, you know, like driverless cars, for instance, the, the headwinds that actually exist, right, and, and really just around infrastructure, right, I mean, like, are so great. Uh, I just, I don't know how, I don't know how it happens as fast as I think some people predict. Um, you know, it's it's one thing to go, like, you know, to put a, a device in everyone's hand, right? You know, not to not to call that simple, but I, I can see how that has evolved so quickly, right? But like to be able to then say like now I can actually physically move people in a organized manner, you know, in the near term, like to affect the way let's say people commute to a city, in a like to be like perfect, right, if you will, or like basically more efficient than it's currently currently available. I think is is just I think it's really hard to think that that's in the near term. I think it's definitely in the long term uh, because you know I think what we have today is broken, right? And so these are solutions, right? So they're part of it. I just think that there's so much more to that story. 
you know, specifically around like what you say, like, you know, location becomes irrelevant. Well, one of the reasons why cities have been built so much is that, you know, it's also because you can't build anywhere else, right? There's like this inherent problem with how we've created the world, right? I mean, I just looking at my town, right? You know, I need to go, you need to go through a 47 step approval process to put up a single family home. Like, how are you going to create any here? I mean, so I just like how many things have to actually change on a municipal level, like for those things to take, to take over from that point. Right. And how long is it? Is it 30 years? I mean, it, it could be longer, it could be shorter, but I, I think in the near term, there's still a lot of value in, in near term investing, but yeah, I mean, to your point, you know, the, the days of saying I'm going to own a building for a hundred years and be very, very happy with that outcome. I'd be very careful to, 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 you know, to bank on that, if you will, um, and say, Oh, I'm going to leave all these buildings to my next generation. They're going to be worth, you know, a billion dollars. It might not be true. It might be absolute. Right. Yeah. E- even the land, right. Yeah. It's, it's hard to gauge if the land will be valuable in that much time because things, and I, I want to qualify what I was saying. I'm saying things will change fast. And what I mean by fast is 20 years. You know, it's, it's not two years. It's not yeah. five years. It, you're right. There is like autonomous vehicles. You have to go through not only the infrastructure that's required in a city to deal with that. Also the regulations, which the way that our government is working today, they're fucking, there's no way you're getting right. any of this approved. Right. There's no way you're going to get stuff like this approved in the next 10 years. Right. So I think, but, but once I, I think there's going to, some, something's going to happen. We're going to reach a tipping point. And this feels like it may be one of those tipping points where things start, your town starts to put things online and simplify that process. And once that happens, that triggers some innovation around it. And then it, that just tips the scale where yeah it's going to completely transform how houses get built, you know, and there's companies, there's a couple of companies that already exist that are 3d printing houses and they're not, big. they're, you know, they're, they're like one room homes, but they're starting out just to prove the concept. And that to me, that was something I was always interested in because I'm like that managing construction, which you can attest to is a fucking nightmare. It is, totally. it is a nightmare. It's, it's like hurting cats that have been injected with LSD. <laughs> so true. Well, and the municipality doesn't help, right? I mean, like, I, it, it's insane. We talk, like, the, sh- the shit we're dealing with in LA around just power, like permanent power, is the hardest thing to acquire for a building. Like, I mean, we're, I'm a, we have a project that's five stories up on a seven-story building, right? We're, like, in the throes of construction. We submitted our, our power application um, in 2018, uh, they literally sent us the first drawing yesterday. I mean, how do people think about all of the bullshit that we have to do? Like, you know, how many, how much capital do I have to raise? How much debt do I have to get? How much risk do I have to pay to actually literally put that building up? Not even knowing where my permanent power is going to come from, which has literally just been a gray hole in my underwriting. Of, it could be 200K, it could be a million dollars. I have no idea. I better have enough room. Right. And that's like, a, think about how awful it is. Right. I mean, so like it's so funny because like technology is just moving so much faster than us as people, as a society, and it's just breaking stuff. Um, and so like, to your point, I think where it could, where it could accelerate 
is, you know, is, is sort of like a different kind of thought process, which is, all right, you know, forget upgrading infrastructure in, in Los Angeles. Let's just leave, right? It's just like, we're just going to go to the desert and I'm going to literally put up a bubble, which I'm sure that, I'm sure that Elon Musk can figure out and to, you know, control the climate. And we'll just start the city there and put all the infrastructure we need, right? And this is plenty of space to go to the Midwest, right? And so like, if you really want to get into those like crazy, you know, or you know, maybe not crazy, like thought processes around like how it could go a lot faster. I mean, look at Texas, right? Which is just a massive landmass ultimately. And they're building, you know, communities faster than we can even realize, you know, and people are, are moving there in droves, right? Because it's, you know, it's cheaper to live. It's, you know, the weather's good and it's just an easier way to kind of get around. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that have been moderate. Right, you're stuck in these old school cities like New York and LA and San Francisco that have you know no infrastructure, there's no ability to fix it. I mean, you know, just commuting to New York City, I live 20 miles from New York City, you know, in the throes of like the height of it, you know, 12 months ago, you know, you leave my house for a long time, it takes you two and a half hours to get there. I mean, that doesn't make any sense right. at the end of the day, so like. At some point, like that will get fixed and, and it will make the city less valuable. I agree. I do think that there is there is a time limit, right? Um, so the question would be is like, can the city can the city make it better? You know, to avoid to avoid its own death, right? You know, by death by regulation, <laughs> you know, which I think is the impediment to a lot of that stuff. Um, but it's it's really a good, you know, it's a really long real estate discussion. I mean, it's there's a lot there. I mean, we can unpack that for hours, honestly. Totally. It's super interesting. Yeah. I mean, I've been trying to process it in the context of my own investments and in the future of how, how I spend my time, really. Yep. And I think, I think ground leases are one interesting path, but you, you ultimately go back to the same question, which is if location becomes irrelevant, how do you value this asset? Right. And I think that may have some larger structural implications on the real estate and real estate capital markets. Yeah, no, listen, I don't disagree. I mean, I think, you know, I think the good thing for us is that, you know, we're, we're in our late 30s already. It's realistically probably not going to, it's probably not going to kill us, right? In the sense, like, we're probably not going to actually be in the business long enough um, in a meaningful way for some some cataclysmic change like that to actually destroy our own business or our own investments. Um, but that's, you know, but going forward, like if you look at a long view, right. I mean, I, I think the risks are enormous, um, especially if you also take into consideration what, what's happened with kind of the debt bubble of the world, right. You know, asset value. So it's like the crash is, is so big, right. Monetarily too. Um, you know, if something like that changes, like it's just a cataclysmic disaster. I mean, I think, look, I love real estate. It's a great business. I'm, I'm glad I chose it as a career. And I'll always probably be in it, but it's still a means to an end, right? Like I, I want to do real estate deals for the rest of my life, but not in the context of like you see some of these like real estate moguls where they're going to literally die in their building, right? Like I don't care about that. Like that's just not on my part, like the top of my priorities. It's about making money thoughtfully on a risk adjusted basis, you know, for myself and my family. And then, you know, hopefully getting to a point where I can spend more time doing other things, right? I mean, that's, that's the reality. I mean, I think it's what you're looking at. You're looking at how do I, I've, I've had a lot of success in real estate. It's, it's actually given me the opportunity to kind of even look at this as an option, right? And that's, that's kind of how I do it too. I mean, I'm, I'm, in the, I'm in the middle of building my company 
right? You know, it's a it's a ten year plan. We're on year four, right? And so, but at the end of ten years, if it works out, like I'm not gonna have to work, you know, if I don't want to, right? And that's the that's the benefit, you know. And so, it's a means to an end. But yeah, I mean, to the point of just like you know, owning real estate forever in a certain location. I mean, I, it wouldn't put me past me right now. I mean, who knows? It, I, what if what if Earth isn't even the best location? Right. Right. I mean, like. Literally, we have these, like, I see an article every other day. Oh, we're going to be at Mars in three years. What, what, should we start buying land on Mars? I mean, I have to be ridiculous. That's a legitimate so question. <laughs> How do we buy land on Mars? I mean, the people that bought land in, in, uh, or in the U.S., right, you know, 200 years ago, they crushed it. So right. let's buy some land on Mars. Elon Musk, if you are somehow listening to the eighth <laughs> episode of the Justin Palmer Show, we will option dirt on Mars if you can figure out how to do a title search. <laughs> that's right. So far. It's, I mean, that's fucking, it, I, look, it, it is crazy. Uh, you, you can go down those paths, but I think yeah. it's, even the thought process is helpful in how you're looking at your own business or how you're looking at making an investment. It's, I, I think it's, it's beneficial to try to think about those things because it, what, it, what it does is put the exit plan at the forefront of the discussion, right? How are you going to make money on this? And like, yeah. what is that? If it's three years or seven years or 10 years, whatever it is, you want to know that going into it. And that's one thing that I didn't, nobody teaches you that in life, right? You, right. you kind of, like you said earlier, you learn that through experience. You learn that through getting burned and realizing, oh shit, I didn't really have a great plan on the exit on this. And now I'm think everything I do, I'm thinking about what is the monetization strategy? What is the exit strategy for anything yeah. that's commercial oriented? Because totally. otherwise you just don't have a plan. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, you know, there's a reason why most of the capital, right, that exists to invest in, in an asset class like, like real estate have been designed as closed on funds, right? Because they're all thinking the same thing. That they're just saying, you know, how do I harvest and kind of move on and, you know, reassess, right? And that's that's what those types of things do for you. Even though, like, you know, the way that the tax code is written, the way that historically things have been, you know, that's actually a detriment to the real estate. Um, but, you know, to your point, as things continue to, to change and it seems like they're changing just more rapidly, you know, it could turn into really the, the most important thing. Um and you know, a way to a way to at least look at it and say, this is where I can cut it off. This is where I can, you know, make sure I don't cut my legs, you know, by going all in. Yeah. Yeah. And I I do think to some extent it's been a little bit of a disservice to society to have all this institutional capital structured in closed end funds. And what that is, they're they're funds that have a specific lifespan. So whether it's a three year, a five year, a seven year, or a ten year. They, mon they work on monetizing on that time horizon. And I, I think it's had impacts on how cities have evolved. Because if you look at going back to the 1920s or 30s, it was mostly private owners that built their business over extremely long periods of time, three, four decades. And they thought like a true owner of those properties. And they were they were people, I had, it's interesting, I had this discussion with my friend Sean Perryman, who was on the show a couple of days ago, about police. And it's the same, everything is tied together. 
policing in a community that you're not a part of has inherent risks because you just, it's not your community. So you just behave however you want. It's the same thing with investing. If you're investing in neighborhoods, there's, there's been this element of community that's been stripped away from American culture, I think. And I don't know what the solution to it is, but I think it's a, I think it's a problem. I think it's a problem that you have all these big companies investing, but they don't have real local interests in that area. You don't have an interest in that coffee shop making it other than it's providing profit or it makes your, your building more valuable there. I, there's, yep. I don't know. I, You're right. seems off. The, well, the real estate business, right. has really grown up the last 40 years, right. It's it, prior to that. It was guys like the pants, right. You know, who just, they'd, you know, they'd, they'd save up money, they'd buy a building, they'd work it and it, it, it'd become part of the community, right. They'd know all their tenants by, by their first name, right. They'd go to dinner with, you know, the owner of the restaurant and, and, you know, they, they had, a, they formed a relationship. Yeah. To, to your point, like, you know, now it's just a cold, just a very, very cold situation, right? It's just like, I'm investing in this building so I can make a 15% IRR. The minute it's time to exit, I'm going to exit, right? And I don't give a shit who lives there. And I don't care who I affect by, by building it. There's no, no, like, totally. I mean, it's just, it's sad, but I, you know, I think that that's, that is what we've become. Um, it is the market. Uh, you know, but to your point, yeah, it's certainly not fostering a, um, a community by any means, right? It's, you know, when you build a building in a certain neighborhood, then you've never lived there, right? You don't actually know anything about how it's affecting the people that live there. You know, even if, even in a place like LA where they, they've underbuilt housing for decades and like, you know, you're doing something good, right? But like, you know, how good are you doing? Right. There's always somebody else on the other side where it's like, wow, you just like, you know, you literally knocked down my neighbor's building and now you're going to put a seven story building in what was a, a, you know, single family home neighborhood, you know, that people, people were living there for 50 years. Like it's not necessarily fair to them. Um, but it's also not fair to, you know, the people paying outrageous amounts of money to, to live in other buildings. Right. So it's a problem. Um, but yeah, I agree with you. It's, you know, it, it's an issue. Um, and it's certainly created a lot of angst. Um, you know, and the haves and the have nots, right? You know, the gentrification, you know, bubble, it's, it's real. I mean, people are being pushed out of their neighborhoods. It's happening everywhere. It's not even just cities. It's right. suburbs too. It's just a problem. Yeah. It, this, it seems to me like this is one of the issues that has to get dealt with quick. It, there has to be some solutions designed around this. And I, I don't know, I don't even know how to tackle it. I, I, I spoke with my friend, Sean, who's running for, he's running for Lieutenant governor in Virginia, uh, which is where he lives. And I think it takes more people like that of making the choice of I'm going to hit pause on my career and run for public office because there's some things going on in Virginia that he doesn't like, and he wants to change to just help update society to the 21st century. And I, I feel like there's a new, there's a new breed of non, non-political politicians that, that need to come out, right? I mean, we saw, we saw what happened in 2016. I, I have no clue what's going to happen in 2020. None. Like, I, I really don't. But, and, I, and I don't even know that it matters that much other than the fact that people are going to, like, a large population of people are going to freak out no matter what happens. Yeah. No, I know. I, I, 
I keep telling people like, I'm, I'm scared either way, like kind of what happens, like if, you know, uh, if Biden gets elected, right. You know, what, what's the economic change, you know, the businesses retract, like, you know, what happens, who knows, right. You know, if, if Trump gets elected, like, are we just going to have riots for four years? I mean, I, it's just, he's so polarizing, right. And I, I'm not really a supporter of either side, um, like either person, if you will, I'm just more of like, obviously I think being a business owner, right. I'm, you know, I'm probably more on the Republican side than anything. Um, you know, but like not to turn it into a political discussion, but it's, um, it, it is really scary to see like, what are the ramifications either way, right? Because I think this is, in my lifetime at least, this is probably the most, the most like debated, heated, you know, election by, by a wide bunch, right? There's just so much disaster going on, right? And I think if you look at, um, like if you just look at the pandemic, right? Like, I don't think anybody really knows what's the truth. like. You know, is it, are we being, is the media basically making it worse than it actually is? Or they, is the media actually trying to sweep it under the rug? I don't think anybody actually answer, can answer that question. Like, it's really weird. Like, it's sad. Like, they've turned it into a complete political situation on both sides. Right. Um, and that just doesn't make any sense. Like, we're literally, people are dying and we're talking about votes. I mean, it's just, the whole thing makes, you know, it just makes me sick. Yeah, it's well. I think I think politics, and I, I was never, I'm still not interested in politics. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm just uninterested in a a power grab by a couple of people trying to push an agenda. And and one thing I am interested in is finding a way to come back to the center where you have to realize in any position. And you learn this running a business too when you're managing people. There's your way, there's the way that other people view it. And then there's the way that's like in the middle that helps make your team happy and helps make you happy as the owner or manager or leader or whatever you are. And we've just, as a society, we've gotten to this place where like you have to be here or you're over here. And, there, yeah. and in between is no man's land. And that's, it's not working because people stop communicating and then we start pointing the finger saying, well, it's them. No, it's them. No, it's them. This is, you have to teach this to kids, right? This is what I'm trying to instill in my kids is that you're, if you choose to hit each other and fight, that's one solution. The other solution is talk it out, just communicate. And I feel like that's kind of been cut off. And maybe that's a, maybe, maybe it's a result of people, the, the current generation that are leading not really understanding how to communicate in the new age of technology, not really understanding how to interact with people in a completely different way, because there's now you hear everyone's voice. So the media has latched onto that and taken things and just, I feel like they just, no matter which side it is, they just spin things completely out of control. And, and you're right. Like no one knows what's happening right now. I personally, I don't think COVID is as bad as it's being made out to be. I'm still being cautious because I have a family to protect. So I'm wearing a mask. I'm doing what I think is responsible, but I don't know if it's dangerous or not. And I'm dealing with shutdowns and a second lockdown and new rules in place. And there's a semi police state happening on every corner, which is scary in its own right. And I think, uh, 
I, I think it's going to get worse before it gets better, unfortunately. And I think it's up to people like us. And this is part of the reason why I, I wanted to launch the podcast was just put a voice out there. Just talk about this stuff. Because if it's not being heard in the mainstream media, somebody has to talk about it. You know? Yeah, no, I don't disagree. I mean, I, at somewhere along the line, like people, I don't know why it became okay for if, if you were on the other side, right? Or whatever, whatever the issue is, it doesn't matter what it is. Like, hey, I believe this, you believe that. Like, I don't know why it became okay to just attack that other person. Like when, when, like, when did that change? Like, I just feel like it was never this bad. Right now it's like, no matter what it is, right? It doesn't like literally anything. You could go on the dumbest app on, on whatever that has any social aspect. And if a person posts anything, literally it could be the sky is blue, there's going to be someone in the comments to say, no, it's fucking green, right? Like, why? Like, why does it have to get to the point where we're just going to insult people over and over again? And then, you know, and then I say why, right? And then I watch like a political debate, right? Between what's supposed to be like a leader of our country or, or prospective leaders of our countries. And instead of debating over the issues about how you're going to solve them, all they do is attack each other. <laughs> it's like, well, I guess, you know, what we expect my 14-year-old, you know, you know, daughter to do probably just attack people, right? And it's like, it's sad, like that's what we're creating. And I think, you know, social media and like access to iPhones and all that stuff's great. And I think I'm for it, but it certainly hasn't helped, right? And I think the the outlet of being able to just, to access, you know, to your point, like get a voice out there, but also like, you know, you post this, if you post this podcast, right? On, on Instagram next week, you know, and they, they hear this part of the conversation, there'll be 56 people in there going, look at these Republican assholes, you know, <laughs> that's what it would be. Right. I mean, so, and it's just, it's just sad. Why, why is it to be that, you know, why can't we have a like productive discussion about moving forward as we not like us against them? Like, we're all in the same place and we're all, most of us all have, this, have similar goals. It's like trying to protect my family and trying to make, make more money. So everybody's happy. I'm trying to, you know, move forward and trying to grow. I'm trying to, you know, most people are in that same camp. You know, it's like, you look at you look at police officers, right? You know, do you think that those guys leave their house in the morning and say, "Oh, I don't want to come home with my kids"? No, like, no. Not. Yeah. I, I mean, not. that's what they want to do, right? And you know, I'm sure that the people that are involved, like you know, even you know, causing a ruckus, right? Or they go to they go to a violent protest. Do you think that they want to? They don't want to come home from that because that's happened too now. People are going to protest and dying. I mean, what? Like, how is that okay? I mean, it's just like on both sides. Okay, it's just horrible. I mean, like and you know, you look at, you know, on the police side, it's like, you know, what incentive do you have to be a cop? What incentive do you have to be a teacher? Right. I mean, you, like we keep destroying like critical, like jobs in our country of like, you know, roles and say like, oh, it's bad to be a cop. Like, well, you know what? We're just going to have less police and more people are going to have guns. Are you just okay with living in that society? Are you prepared for that? I mean, gun sales are at record highs. Right? I mean, you know, I, I have like three friends in the last like, two weeks, I'm like, oh, I just bought a gun. Really? Why? I mean, it's New Jersey. No one has guns, but, you know, <laughs> it's kind of funny. <laughs> but, like, you know, it's, you know, it's the norm, though, in some places. But, you know, it's just, like, that. that's just that's just sad, right? You know, and, and I asked them, like, well, why did you buy a gun? And they're like, well, you know, it's just one of those things where it's like, who knows? Maybe it's, like, it's insurance what you, policy. Like, what are you preparing for in your mind? Like, that's scary. Yeah. Well, I, it, dude, I, I bought two when I moved and there you, go. you know, I, I bought two and this was early, this was before 
the pandemic had really kicked in, but one of my first objectives was I need to get, you know, tools to protect the family in like a home invasion scenario. And, um, I don't know if that was because I'm moving from a big city and I'm used to just having a doorman stop anybody that walks in the building. And so there was some insecurity about being able to control that. Um, but I also, it, when I bought them, I fully understood that I have a responsibility to learn how to use them safely to the best of my ability as a human. Right. And I've, I've used guns plenty. I've been around, you know, shooting ranges and stuff like that. But even the specific one weapon I bought, I'm very comfortable with one I bought, I I'm not as comfortable with, and I it's locked up with ammo locked up separately. And it has to be that way until I'm more comfortable with it. Um, but I, I get why people are doing it. I, yeah. I get why people are doing it. And I never would have thought about that. It, three years ago, I wasn't even thinking about that. And, but I agree with you. It's, it's almost like we're in the middle of a decentralization of society in a way where education, police, all these things are being decentralized. And in, if it's done well, that actually can be a good thing. If, if it's done responsibly and slowly and efficiently, I think, I think it can be done uh, in a way <coughs> where people may be better off, right? Home, homeschooling your kids, which is not the most efficient thing to do from an economic perspective. If you're focused on what, one thing I've been asking myself lately is like, why am I spending all this energy trying to acquire a bunch of fucking paper that I have to just give back at some point in time? And I started making more conscious decisions about how I use my time being present in the moment with my kids instead of trying to move on to the next thing. And I, I think it's a good thing. I think it's a good thing if parents can do that. I, and maybe a solution for that is some sort of hybrid in-person home schooling. You know, it reduces the load from a tax burden perspective. I mean, you have to completely change how communities are built because yeah. the size of the school you need is now half, right? So I, I think a lot of these changes are on the horizon for society. And it, I look again, I, I'm not, I have no idea what any of the solutions are. It's just, this is where my thoughts are going on this stuff. And I think you brought up some great points about we have to stop polarizing everything. We, we have to just get back to the center and understand that on the other side of the argument is a human and that human may have views that are different than yours and that's okay. Yep. No, that is the truth. Um, and we're very far from that. Um, and, you know, and that's, I think is the biggest, the biggest problem with, you know, where our presidency has gone, right? It's purely polarizing one way or the other, uh, whether you believe in it or not. Um, and so there's no middle. And that's just a dangerous place to be. Um, yeah. That's how, that's how war started. You know, two people on, you know, on either side, right? Afraid of the convergence, right? That's a, a bad place to be. For sure. Well, and that and the combination of in a toxic debt load on the country, right? Yeah. This, we, have, we have a toxic debt load. And if you look at history, the countries that ended up collapsing were the countries that just had insurmountable amounts of debt and you it, i think you're right it forces you to either go into a situation where you start a war to start paying the bills or someone attacks you because they see that you're weak yep 
And yeah, no, that's, that's a scary really thought. Scary. Yeah. That's a scary thought. Well, I never like to end on a dark note. And so I'd like to, I'd like to transition. I want, yeah. there's one other thing I wanted to talk to you about, which is, uh, you, you have an interest in poker and you, I think a lot of your business sense comes from some of the lessons that you've learned from gambling in general. And I, I would love to hear your philosophy on that. That's super interesting. Um, yeah, listen, I mean, I think, uh, I started playing poker back in, I want to say like 2003 or so in college. And, um, you know, I went to the university of Delaware, which wasn't far from Atlantic city. Um, and so we would take a lot of trips there all the time just to kind of party, you know? And so I ended up at the poker table a lot, just trying to, to learn the game and really enjoyed it because at the end of the day, poker is really kind of like a math problem, um, you know, and a situational problem, right? It's like dealing with people, understanding how they think, you know, what is the math behind that? And, you know, basically on a risk adjusted basis, you know, what do I do? Right. Which is basically how life is, right? If you think about everything that you do, whether it's investing or just, you know, how you strategize, how you like get to the next step, whatever it is, you know, there's all of those like factors that have to come into play to make a decision that you don't know the outcome, right? And all you can do is kind of create the best bet. Um, and so I think poker resonated really well with me because it's just like very similar to those things, right? And um, I spent a bunch of time, you know, really like from like 2004 to probably 2010, uh, playing a lot of poker, um, you know, and that, it, that like not a coincidence, right? I mean, if you think about what happened in, in the poker world, like there was a big kind of change, you know, uh, it became more popular in this country. Right? I mean, just more games were happening. The World Series of Poker became super popular. Online poker like started to happen in an unregulated reality, right? Of like, what the hell's happening here in, you know, in the U.S. Um, and so, you know, during that time, I remember I read every book. I, I played so many, so many hours of poker and I would, you know, because I was an entrepreneur too, I, I had, I had more time because right? my, so I didn't go to work nine to five. I could work, put my hours in whenever I needed to. So it kind of created some freedom to spend more time playing. Um, and I had a lot of success with it, you know, um, it, it, you know, but it went up and down just like anything else, right? Poker, at the end of the day, it's not hundred percent skill, but there's still some luck factor, right? And so you go through swings. Right. But I think um, that taught me a lot about how to operate, you know, when things aren't good. Right. Because, you you know, the way that we, the way that like most professional poker players and I was not professional by any right. But the way that they think about it is if I keep making the right decision in every situation, in the long run, I'm going to make. It, right. It's just it, I have to make sure, though, that I can withstand the swing. Right. So bankroll management, you know, not you know, not putting all of your chips in essentially one game, right? You know, choosing who you play against, right? All of those things are very critical to making money in poker. And they're super critical in, in business and super critical in life, right? I mean, like if you're if you're a 28-year-old single guy and you keep trying to date models, right? And you're just not that good looking, like you're probably gonna, gonna keep losing, right? You know, like you need to you need to know who you're going against, right? And try to, you know, pick some, pick some, you know like not quite as hot chicks and, and go after them, right? Your, your success rate's going to go up, right? I mean, so like it kind of applies to literally anything, which is what I loved about it. And, uh, you know, and so, you know, unfortunately I haven't really played a lot of poker in the last five, six years. I mean, mostly because of family, right? I mean, you know, the time that I don't work, I'm spending with, you know, my kids and, and my wife. 
um, you know, doing those things, which is, you know, what I choose to do, right? I mean, I, you know, that's what I want to do. You know, I love poker and I would love to get back into playing on a more regular basis, but it's going to be a long time before that happens. What's, what's the biggest swing you've had? I mean, have you had some like real hair raising moments? No, nothing crazy. I, you know, I was always conservative, you know, partly too, because I didn't, I didn't have a ton of money, right? I was, and I was reinvesting in like anything I made into the business to grow it, you know, early on in my career. And even just like, you know, since, since I then moved on and a regular kind of job, you know, I got married, had family. So like, I'm very conservative around like how I gamble. Um, but I think, you know, the best story that I could probably give around like, you know, like poker is an interesting kind of way to think about it. Right. I remember one day, I, I think I had about like five grand or so when I was playing with a bankroll, which was essentially two buy-ins to this game. So I would, I would go to Atlantic City probably three days a week um, and you'd buy in for 2,500 bucks. Um, you'd play five, 10, kind of no limit holding. Um, and so the pot sizes get pretty big, right? And like you know, putting putting your buy-in, you know, on, in a hand, like happened a lot, right? And so I bought two buy-ins, which was probably not enough. I was probably paying a little bit too high. Um, but, you know, the, the part of the problem was that when you go down during the week, the smaller games actually wouldn't be happening. And the bigger games were the ones that were happening because it was just more money. Um, and so, you know, I was trying to, like, you know, move up the ranks, play against better players, too, just to kind of grind. Um, and I brought two buy-ins down. I remember the, I sit down at the game. I buy in for my first buy-in, 2,500. The first hand, I get dealt aces. Best hand you can have in poker. And if you play, you know. You know. And, uh, you know, playing it right, getting it all in before the flop, you know, because a guy just went crazy and he had ace-king. And, you know, I'm not going to tell bad beat stories on a podcast, but you know what happened, right? So I'm like, all right, well, look, it's part of the game. I'm going to buy back in again. I got my other buy-in. That's why I came. You know, hopefully I'll be here for another 10 hours. I stick the next buy-in. Uh, the next hand, I get dealt two kings. We, we do see a flop, but it eventually all goes in. Same thing gone, goodbye, see you, two hands, right? I'm literally out of money. Now, I can, now I'm like steaming, of course, right? If you play poker, you're just on you know, tilt. And I was like, I could go to the bank right now, but I'm not. I just got back in my car and drove, you know, an hour, like an hour ride. So I literally drove an hour, played for all, like all six minutes, lost full buy-ins and just like left and went back. But like, you know, in the hindsight, it's like, you know what? I did what I was supposed to do. Right. I didn't, I didn't go on till I didn't go to the bank, take out 20 grand and just like act like a moron and blow all because that's what a lot of people do. Right. And that's, you know, that's exactly how you can get really hurt in anything. Like even, you know, look at the stock market, right. You, if you have that same mentality you get crushed. Right. And so you can apply that to so many things in life. Right. You know? And so, I mean, um, it, it's kind of funny because poker too, is it's a really hard game because you don't remember your wins. You only remember your losses. Um, so I'm sure there were plenty of times where I went down and ran really good, ran it up, you know, got lucky. Uh, but you don't remember those. You only remember the disasters. It's just, it's just, you know, one of those things. Those are the learning lessons, right? Exactly. Exactly. You learn more by losing and failing. So don't, don't go to college, folks. Learn how to play <laughs> poker and learn how to play it well. That's right. Yeah. I mean, right. Listen, you want to make, uh, you can make a hundred bucks an hour playing poker if you do it right. You know, you got to practice. Just like anything. For sure. Yeah. Just like anything. I, I love that. Well, I, th I think that's a great note to end it on. If, that, if cool. that's good for you, I would like to um, give you an opportunity to tell people where to find you, your website, Instagram, whatever, whatever your preference is. Um, you know, let yeah, know. absolutely. 
Yeah, I mean, the easiest way to find me um, is, is by email. Um, if you go to my Don't website, give people your email because you never know what this... Hang on, hang on. Don't give people your email, please. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, I have no you idea. Can, yeah, no, I'll just give them your if you website. Go to, if you go to my website, 6bcapital.com, you can, you can hit a, you know, um, a contact us you know, button and uh, send me a note and uh, you know, happy to chat. So I'm looking forward to, to speaking to a few of you. That's a wrap, folks. What an incredible conversation with Chris, filled with insight, a lot of ideas thrown out there. And I hope you guys took something away from it. Uh, Most importantly, just the power to keep going through, keep moving through whatever it is you're doing, whatever business you're in, whatever you're pursuing in your life. Chris's story is phenomenal. Check out his website, Six Peak. Those guys, they're building incredible things. It's, It's... it's hard to explain how innovative it is in the real estate space to build uh, non-traditional studios, one bedrooms, two bedrooms in urban markets. Those guys are true innovators. And uh, I'm looking forward to having Chris on the show again. Check it out. Check out other episodes. Shout out to Chris Williams. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I appreciate it. Have an incredible day.